and I'm speaking with award-winning journalist and novelist Ben Ehrenreich about his new book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, which vividly documents the specific mechanisms of what he calls the giant humiliation machine that's controlling Palestinian lives under occupation. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. We'll talk more after a break. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihera Zazan, and I'm speaking with award-winning journalist and novelist Ben Ehrenreich about his new book, The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. It documents the specific mechanisms of what he calls the giant humiliation machine that's controlling Palestinians' lives under occupation. There is a collective struggle against the occupation, but within that collective struggle, they're separated from each other. It's fewer than two million people, which means that it's about the entire population of the West Bank is about the size of a a small American city, which means everybody knows each other. And certainly the people in Nabi Saleh know the people in Hebron. And occasionally people will turn out in solidarity for each other's other's events and, and, and things. But Umukher is a little bit different because it's Bedouin and it does mean that they really are isolated from the rest of Palestinian society as well. But generally, I, w- I would say while there is some, some solidarity, like some concrete solidarity in terms of acting together, and occasionally there are actions which bring everybody from all over the West Bank together, at the moment things are really atomized and things are really fragmented. And that's partly a, I think, partly a result of the restrictions that the occupation has brought to the West Bank. And it's partly a result, I think, of the you know, long process of Osloization, to coin an ugly word, that people are very much engaged in their individual activities without a, as much of a sense of a broader collective struggle as used to exist in, in Palestine. I think Oslo has made it harder for people to conceive of a of themselves as a collectivity. I think the, the, the effects of Oslo have been to really focus people on their, on their own lives and to, to break down the kind of solidarity that used to exist. And that, in many ways, those changes within Palestinian society are a more powerful obstacle to resistance than any of the munitions or, or the concrete structures of the occupation. I thought your book was very pessimistic, but you say... Quote, I do believe that this book is a work of optimism and of hope. I I think I saw hope in two places. And you're right. I think in terms of concrete possibilities, things are as, as bad as they've ever been. But I couldn't help but see in the act of resistance, in people's insistence on their own dignity, despite all obstacles to that, something very powerfully human, which has not yet been defeated and I don't think can be very easily defeated. And as awful as things are right now, that's something that I found very profound. Um, In terms of more concrete and pragmatic hope, at the moment I don't think it's coming from Palestine. It's certainly not coming from within Israeli society. But I do think that some of the ways that the political situation in the U.S. is changing will, not in the short term, but may in in the slightly longer term really have powerful effects there. You know, we shouldn't forget that the U.S. sends $3.1 billion of military aid to Israel every year. And Israel wants more. And, and Netanyahu has been, been fighting to bring that above $5 billion a year. Obama wants, wants to settle for somewhere in the fours because he's a, 
uh, a man of great <laughs> integrity. And that's powerful. And, and I think it's, it's really important for Americans to remember as hopeless as things seem over there and as hopeless as, as they may in fact be at the moment, the one set of people who really do have power right now are Americans. And I think that can have two, two main thrusts. And one is politically, that Americans need to start pushing their government to stop funding this occupation, to stop purchasing all of the, the mechanics of death which, which the Israeli government uses on Palestinians. And the other one is economic. It's BDS. It's the boycott. That there've been, one can get depressed here in the U.S. because there's there've been some successful attempts in various states to blacklist BDS and 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 things like that. But what this, I think, this is actually a sign of hope. It means that they're quite scared and they're quite worried about the success of of BDS in various states and on college campuses, and every bit of opposition to the BDS movement needs to be understood as, as just that, as a, as a sign of its strength. And a you know, several years ago, we interviewed a Norwegian activist, and he spoke about the fact that, yes, Islamophobia was on the rise in Norway, but so was the, the support for the Palestinian rights. Mm-hmm. Do you think in the U.S. the rise of Islamophobia has hurt the cause of the Palestinian rights because Israel and its supporters in the U.S. always try to take advantage of heightened episodes of racism and Islamophobia and the racist and Islamophobic rhetoric to further Israel's colonial expansionist policies. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. That's, I, I don't want to predict, but that's where the battle is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, I think the Netanyahu certainly re- recognizes that's where the battle is. After the Orlando shootings, Netanyahu released this a very long statement expressing his great solidarity with with the American people and 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 his great solidarity with gays around the world which is laughable but but he's been making the case again and again that Israel and the US and the West generally face a common enemy which is you know Islamic terror and I think it's important to remember from here that this is not in in Palestine. It's not an Isla- a religious question. the The issue is the occupation. This is a question of a colonialist occupation, not of a of an ancient religious dispute. There were basically almost no, very few frictions between Jews and, and Muslims in Palestine until the Zionist presence began in in the um, early twentieth century, and really in, until Britain began to favor a. Zionist solution there. And it's no surprise that Netanyahu, the Israeli government, just approved an additional $18 million for the expansion of the settlements in the West Bank. It's always been, the the issue has always been one of colonialist expansion, I think. And Netanyahu will keep doing that. There at the moment within Israeli society, unfortunately, no breaks to stop this. But I I think from here, from the U.S., it it is possible to exert more influence. So how do you feel about how your book has been received in the U.S. so far? It's certainly harder to get a book about Palestine out to the American audience than about almost anything else, despite all of the fractures in, in, the, in the discourse that I've been talking about. It, it's, it's still an uphill battle. And I think, you know, there have been some great reviews. There was a wonderful review from Charles Glass in The Intercept. There have been 
some of the review the, the ones that make me laugh a, bit, a little bit are the ones where the reviewers are clearly afraid to take a stand and the reviewers write a lot of things like some readers may react and because you know, it's still a touchy enough issue that the people who are not particularly brave individuals <laughs> are afraid to uh, to come down strongly on either side. And, you know, that's fine. I'm happy that it's getting out there. I'm happy it's getting the attention that it's getting. I'm happy that it's getting people talking. So far, I'm quite happy because the the one tactic that is used to prevent discussion of these issues is is not even dismissal. It's just it's, it's it's ignoring things. It's not reviewing them. It's not writing about them. It's not allowing them to enter the the public discourse. And for the most part, that hasn't been happening with this book. It's been it's been slipping past the various gates. So I'm happy. It, it's it's forcing I think a conversation or beginning to force a conversation that this country um, is ready for even if its various media gatekeepers are, are nervous about it. So covering Palestine, spending so much time in Palestine, how has it changed you as a journalist? You know, I think one of the things that was attractive to me um, when I first started working there was that so many of the issues that I've been writing about in the U.S., things like border militarization, things like the militarization of policing, um, um, a lot of the trends that I was seeing happen in the U.S. were happening there as if, like, the contrast had been upped, um, mm. as if everything had been boiled down and, and you could just see the outlines of everything much more sharply. Um, so I don't know that it's, it's changed me in, changed my politics or changed me in any really identifiable ways, except that it's, I think I can see things with a, a level of clarity that wasn't always possible working within an American context. You know, I came back to the U.S. at the end of the summer of 2014, and when I came back, things were still happening in Ferguson. And, you know, having come back from the, the West Bank, where it constantly been at, at protests, um, where young people were confronting you know, security forces and being shot at, had tear gas shot at them, and then to see the exact same thing happening in Ferguson. It's not just a, a superficial parallel. And to be able to understand something like like what happened in Ferguson and so many other American cities, mm. like this is how governments deal with populations that they no longer have a use for. Mm. Um, and I think this is something we're going to see in more and more parts of the world as economic changes mean that, like, there are huge parts of every population that the powers that be no longer have a use for, and they want to corral them in prisons, and they otherwise want to get rid yeah, of them. They want to wall them, them off yeah. and not deal with them. And that's certainly true of the black population in the U.S. It's absolutely true of the you know the Palestinian population, and 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 I think that is is a global reality that we're going to see more and more of. And this is something that Israel has been doing for the past sixty-eight years. Yeah, and, and I think one thing it means is that the the lessons of yeah. resistance in Palestine, it's not just a local Middle Eastern issue. I mean, the, the, I think all of us can look to Palestinian resistance as we try to figure out how to confront these powers wherever we are. Ben Ehrenreich is an award-winning journalist and author of two novels, Ether and the Suitors. His latest book, The Way to the Spring, is based on his three years of reporting from the West Bank. 
We welcome your program ideas and your feedback. You can email me at mrazazan08 at yahoo.com. For status, I am Malihe Razazan, and thanks for listening. Please join us again for another edition of Status. Status.